0: Welcome. Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio. Hi, I'm Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm your host on this our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. And in each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living landscape of work through visual devices and visual systems. How to install the language Of our current level of operational excellence, even if we're not quite as excellent as we wish we would be or as we know we will be, (laughs) we install that level into that living landscape, into our operations, and we let the workplace speak. We make it concrete. And why do we bother? We bother because we get amazing bottom line benefits, improved safety, quality, aligned delivery time, shrinking costs. And we also get a splendid cultural alignment, a spirited and engaged workforce. That's one of the major outcomes of workplace visuality. We install a language that connects people. And we also enjoy ourselves at work. And don't we want to? Don't we want to go to work and say, ah, I'm glad I'm here? So that's what this show is about. And in each of our shows, we look at an aspect that might be cultural, it might be operational, it might have to do with leadership or operators or supervisors. All of that is rich territory for workplace visuality because the visual workplace not only impacts that, but actually cultivates those outcomes, cultivates this spirited and aligned and engaged workforce with these tremendous benefits. We often see really regularly 15% increase in productivity, whatever the venue, and that can be productivity in an office, it can be productivity in in a healthcare facility, and it's certainly in a factory. So, today, today, I want to begin a series called The Hero Within, and I want to do that in response to the emails that you've been sending. You've been sending them to radio at visualworkplace.com. Thank you very much. And we've been receiving them and reading them, and we're getting more and more emails about your interest in visuality as a doorway to an empowered work culture, how right you are. So I want to dig into that. So I'm going to start this series and share with you my perspective on why visuality is able to build that kind of a work culture and also begin to unfold how. So they're going to kind of go back and forth. The why and the how are very, very close conceptually in the visual workplace. I expect that this series will continue over four or five shows. And one of my intentions is to describe, after I kind of build the rationale, to describe the role of the supervisor in helping to make these outcomes happen. But not only that helping the supervisor become part of that spirited and engaged work culture. Why do we leave supervisors out? They are the glue that holds the whole operations together. So so let's just begin. You know, I have noticed probably the same as you that in far too many organizations, the social fabric of the workplace the work culture, the social fabric, is out of balance, and without a substantive change in that culture, there's no implement. I beg your pardon. There's no implementation, however excellent in intent, that will become sustainable. The culture is the substance of your sustainment mechanism, and so change has to begin. At a level of each employee's, and this is my choice as a beginning part, I believe that it has to begin with the sense of self, with his or her place within the enterprise and his or her relationship with others. The change must begin at the level of each employee's sense of self. The way I capsulize that is to talk about the hero within. And one of the organizing questions for me when I look at an organization is this, which actually comes from Charles Dickens and his wonderful novel, David Copperfield, will I be the hero of my own life? Will I be the hero of my own life? So Dickens opens his novel, this endless 450 page, could be 600 page book, depending on the size of the page and the the font, he opens his classic David Copperfield with David pondering his young life. And in the quiet of his heart, David asks, will I be the hero of my own life? He's on the beach, he's having struggles, and he's wondering about the life to come. He's a young man. Over the next 400 or so pages, David proceeds to discover the answer to that in the trials and adventures of becoming a man in 19th century England. David's question is our question. Though quietly forgotten as we grow older, when each of us was young, this was the question in our hearts. Will I be the hero of my own life? It may have been worded differently, Maybe it sounded more like, what will I be when I grow up? Deep in the mystery of our childhood, this was our question, what will I be when I grow up? And then in our adolescent heart, there was a profound belief that whatever that answer turned out to be, I would be excellent at it. I will excel. I will make something of my life. I will be its hero. This Very sentiment was at the heart of a discussion that I had about a decade ago with an employee of an aerospace manufacturer in Texas. I call him Ted. Ted had started at this large corporation, large and famous corporation, about 27 years before. He was fresh out of high school. His dad had worked there before him. And Ted told me during this conversation, pardon me, during this conversation, He said, you know, as a kid, I would stand in my backyard and I would see these fighter planes. It was an aerospace manufacturer. These fighter planes cut white streamers across the sky. And I was just thrilled to my bones because I knew someday I was going to join my dad in making those magnificent, magnificent airplanes, so slick and fast, so perfect. He said... He recalled saying to himself, I'm going to make fighter planes when I grow up. That's what I'm going to do, just like Dad. It was a very, very beautiful moment. He was fresh out of high school when he went to that great aerospace company, knocked on the door, and said, please hire me. And they did. He said, "I, I went in to be a hero, Gwendolyn. I wanted to do something great. That was 27 years ago. What happened? That's what he said. He said, that was 27 years ago. He paused and then he asked, what happened? I looked at him and I saw a fine person. But I knew that Ted wanted me to look deeper. He wanted me to see that that hero was still inside, waiting to get out. I was silent. I understood. I understood. What would it be like if the job description for every CEO, president, plant manager, VP, manager, and supervisor, part of that job description was to help employees find and manifest the hero within? What would it be like? Hmm? Those who would take this on would widen immediately their definition of their own work. What would happen? And what would happen if you took this on? Whatever you do in the company. What would happen if you committed to helping each person who reports to you become a hero in their own work? What part of your current job would stay the same and what part would change? What part of you would change? Here's the thing. The work culture is identity's mirror how does a manager help people realize the transcendent, the transcendent dimension of themselves? And when I talk about how does a manager, please know in that term, I'm including supervisors, executives, union leaders, every, everyone who has staff responsibility, who's not an hourly employee or who's not a value add associate. Most of my conversations are about power and the distribution of power in all of its glorious forms. And for me, this question of the hero within, this question of the work culture, is pure and simply a matter of identity, the power to transform a top-down traditional culture into one that is empowered rests on this issue, who you believe you are and who you believe the other person is. Who you think you are and who you think the other is, that's a definition of work culture. And the culture becomes aligned in my experience, in my work, in the outcomes that I support through my work, with corporations, with companies everywhere, the culture becomes aligned when I know that I am you. When I know that I am you, it takes a little convincing. It takes a little time for that to evolve so that we first of all shift and begin to understand who we think we are and then we focus on, well, who is that other one? Who's that other person? here in this room with me, the one I'm talking to, or the one who's talking to me. What do I believe about that person? That's your culture. That's what it is right now. And when that culture becomes aligned, then I know that I am you. The deepest cultural change begin and end on the level of our beliefs about identity. Shifting people's identity beliefs doesn't happen overnight. And it is most easily accomplished by making the process as tangible as possible at every step, as tangible as possible. So it isn't so much believing as much as seeing and demonstrating the evidence is there. Management must discover ways to translate new beliefs about who people are into a concrete system, this is Gwendolyn talking now, of principles, methods, tools, and behaviors. Hmm? That we'll get to in a little while. But right now, let's stay focused on the concept or this principle of identity, that identity rules whether we want it or not. As I said before, the mirror of identity is your work culture. As we think about creating this possibility of change, we also realize that people need time for this, but they also need permission. It needs to be, by permission, I mean a stated intent, it needs to be said in a series of principles. All of us are learners, everyone is a problem solver, Um, let's share the load, respect the individual, maybe the way that you say it, the way the Japanese say it is respect humanity. It's a mistranslation of what Toyota was after. If we say Toyota is one of their abiding principles is respect the individual, no, the Japanese says respect humanity. And so that was translated into what we, closer to what we in the West um, understand, something less grandiose, less grand, I should say, not grandiose. So people need time and they need permission. They need to know that it's okay, that it's going to be allowed. And they also need protocols of behaviors that will help them reliably and predictably shift into a higher dimension of their own being. You cannot help people realize the hero within merely by communicating or encouraging. Communicate what? Encourage what? You have to offer them a structure. This is what I believe and what I've experienced around workplace visuality, at least the way I do it. That change also has to be on the value add level. It doesn't necessarily have to start there although that's a very good place to work out the model. But on the value-add level, where there are so many distortions about people, this is where they collect misbegotten beliefs that are part and parcel of the company's current work culture. So it's here that implementing visuality in the workplace can be such a potent force in transforming the entire enterprise. And with that, of course, the work culture that every enterprise must express. Believe me, whether you worked on it or not, you've got a work culture. <laughs> and it, re- it reflects your beliefs about identity. At least that is my belief and my experience. That is my premise. So unless you're a first-time listener to my radio show, Visual Workplace Radio, you have heard me talk about the two questions that drive a visual workplace – What do I need to know? What do I need to know that I don't know right now in order to do my work? And what do I need to share? What do I know that other people need to know that I need to share in order for them to do their work more completely, more safely, more on time, more reliably? The I in both of these questions is key to the question itself, and it is also key to the system that I call visual thinking. The focus of visual thinking is to make the workplace speak. To do that, you have to find, identify motion and eliminate it by eliminating the information deficits, the missing answers that trigger that motion through solutions that are visual. So, you find and eliminate motion and the information deficits that trigger that motion through solutions that are visual. That's how that's a kind of encapsulation of how the visual workplace is created. The need to know and need to share are also key to creating a work culture that is focused on improvement, that is engaged, spirited, empowered that is self-leadership and accountability, self-accountability. The energy and the power of the I, this I that I just referred to, is the driving force. It is the engine. It is the power of the I that allows us to say yes wholeheartedly. And once that I is systematically engaged, Heroes are not far behind. So need to know, need to share. I want to say a few things about that. And I'm going to be moving into a perspective on operator-led visuality because that is where we see it most clearly demonstrated. But I could, and I will in later shows, move this discussion of the eye as the organizing principle for the hero within for a spirited and engaged work culture, I'll move it into executive managers and uh, supervisory role. This is really, really the core of my work. And that's what makes it so powerful and so reliable because that I exists in each of us. And even though it's been squished down in many, many cases and, you know, distorted, it's still there. It still wants to come out and it wants to come out powerfully, we can create the pathway for that. So the need to know, need to share, asked and answered iteratively, cycle after cycle, are the play of getting information out of the state of missing and into the state of embedded. It is the way that we find What is it that is missing? What are the information deficits that are causing me to struggle to be in motion? And translating that information into visual devices so that the answers reside in the living landscape of work and we can pull that information to us when and as we need it. There's some sub-dynamics to that that I want to kind of unfold. I've mentioned all of these things in my earlier shows But now I want to go into it in some depth. So at the outset, if we're looking just at the value-add level, and we can look just, I want to say it again, just at the executive level, or we could look at just the supervisor level. This is consistent throughout the model. But if we're looking just at the operator level, at the outset, the singular focus of need-to-know is, Almost everywhere, I will say it more completely everywhere that I've ever been, (laughs) everywhere that I've ever worked, the singular focus of need to know for the shop floor, for the operations level, is the answer to the where question. Something as simple and ordinary as where are my pliers? Where are my materials? Where are my reports? Where are my specs? Where is my supervisor? And the result of answering that question is that the immediate work area is populated with dozens of visual devices that answer the individual's question about where. And you know what? The individual's question about where is shared by many. Many have that question. And this is how the visual where gets so deeply installed. I say, for everything that casts a shadow. Another term for visual where is sort of 5S, but 5S, as you have heard me say, and as you know yourself, usually stops on the third S and never really gets visual. But when it does get visual, then you are beginning to embed a language that liberates the human. When we liberate information, we liberate the human will. This is something we learned in the 1960s And it has been unfolding ever since. It is where in the United States the Freedom of Information Act, that's the genesis, the need, the requirement that we have the information that impacts our lives, if not governs our lives. This is the same terrain when I talk about, believe it or not, when I talk about borders and addresses and as applies ID labels, for everything that casts a shadow. This is the liberation of information. It is one of the frustrations for operators to not even be able to get that simple question answered in a simple, consistent, reliable, and visual, visible way where things are so fundamental that the frustration, the confusion, the anger, the resistance, the indifference, the numbness that is triggered in its absence is a a business factor. It is your work culture on the operations level. If people cannot get an answer to that simple question, they begin to ask, what's my life about? Am I really working only to pay my mortgage? Because they experience their work as struggle. There can be no flow without the answer to the where questions. On the, If you're in manufacturing, if you're in a hospital, if you're struggling with the where question, it ain't pretty, it ain't fun, and you don't look forward to going to work in the morning. So how can you bring the better part of you into work? Instead, you leave it in the back seat of your car with the windows cracked a little bit so that it's still breathing when you come back, that better part of you. How can you bring it into work when work is a struggle? You bring your defensiveness, your your fists are up. You duke it out every day. <laughs> or you dominate it in some obnoxious way so that you get what you want and you have some sense of control. <laughs> so the result of that simple I-driven, it is I-driven, it is not we-driven, of that simple question is that the visual wear is implemented. And over time, the logic of the visual wear and the control that follows spreads across the company. And the the impact can be so far-reaching and unprecedented for the people who have, wor- who have worked without that wear that they often assume that 90% of their journey to a visual workplace is completed just by putting down borders and addresses. In truth, it represents about 15% of the overall impact for the enterprise. But it's 90% for them. (laughs) So this physical conversion of the work environment is what I meant before when I said it needs, if you want people to learn how to shift their identity, to even be able to begin to do that, you have to change the physical environment. This is not a conversation. This is not group therapy. This is a physical, tangible change in the workplace so that my physical behavior can change. Instead of fighting against, instead of fighting against the environment, the environment is with me. We flow together. That is the beauty of it. Okay? So, the physical conversion of the work environment will trigger, will make this outcome possible. It is a physical change and the outcome is a cultural conversion as well. And it exists on the socio-leadership dimension of the enterprise. People begin to be present at their work. Hmm? The impact and the meaning is this. I am in control of my corner of the world. It may be a small corner, but I am in control. This is a mighty occurrence. When an operator states, I am in control of my corner of the world and feels in control, you can confidently predict that that person is on his or her way to becoming a steady improvement contributor, a genuine citizen of the organization, do you see, even if the team is not yet formed, that person is forming themselves into an authentic team member because they feel the power of their, the eye within them, this hero that wants to come out, but they also feel flow. And that is what they're describing when they say, I'm in control Translated, it means I'm in flow. I can go from A to B to C to D at will. I'm in control because my workplace flows. And in my experience, the simple physical act of installing, in this example, the visual wear, through an eye-driven premise provides us with an invaluable sense of physical control that we all crave and need. And personal confidence is a natural byproduct. But I want to say something more because this will apply to supervisors and managers and executives as well. When we look closer at that sense of control, which for some people is their first experience of any degree of mastery at work, it represents a revolutionary personal breakthrough, slowly control becomes confidence, confidence in one's own ability to address the world at work, and as this sense of control and confidence spreads from individual to individual, department to department, a trust in the company exists, begins to emerge. A trust between people, between departments, and in the company itself begins to emerge. This creates a tremendous shift over time, but not all that much time. Several months can get this rolling. I've seen this dozens of times. This is my work. These shifts in personal identity lay the groundwork for resourcefulness and higher levels of engagement and connectivity that characteristically produce high-performing, high-functioning teams. When you look closer, you will see that this simple mastery of the physical environment through the visual wear does this magical, marvelous thing. It creates margin within us. It creates space within us, space within which we can grow. Unless you have lived through it, it it may be hard to believe that the simple act of installing the visual wear can engender leaders where before there were none. Yet I've witnessed this repeatedly. The journey into visuality has to change us because it changes the way in which information is delivered and therefore it changes the social fabric of work. Simply put, I said it a moment ago, the liberation of information is the liberation of the human will. When the human will is liberated, it is free to align with any purpose that makes sense to it, that it wants to enroll in. Excellence attracts that will, the liberated will. Almost always, I can find no exception in my experience, the liberated will chooses to align with the corporate intent if excellence is at the heart of that corporate intent. So I want to go back to what I mentioned before about this margin, this creating the space within us. One of the things that we know is that we cannot grow, I as a person cannot grow under unrelenting stress and pressure. Without relief from that, I'm stuck. And it may be entirely external. There may be external pressures on me, external requirements. External stresses that I have no control over, and I'm going to stay the same. And that same is probably going to be either numb and indifferent or angry and combative. And you're going to ask me to change because my social behavior is unacceptable. I'm not going to be able to do it unless you give me some relief. Because without relief, I can't relax a little bit, not a lot. I'm not going to go grab my umbrella and my sunglasses and, you know, have a day at the beach at work. I mean, de-stress enough for there to be within me some margin of space. That's what happens when we relax. Room appears inside perhaps not yet spaciousness, but space. And it is within that space that we can grow. The space allows us. The space allows the hero within to begin to appear. I want to emphasize this, and I hope that my words are clear, because this is a subtle almost invisible dynamic, but it is an outcome in particular of the visual workplace of embedding information into the living landscape of work so that I can pull it to me when and as I need it and it is accurate, complete, and timely. And I can flow. And I rest within that. The flow is predictable, is knowable, it supports me. And a small smile appears on my face as I begin to enjoy myself just a tiny bit at work because not everything is fighting me anymore. This is a purpose. It is one of the major outcomes on the physical side of the visual workplace. On the physical side, it's because there is embedded information and embedded order. There is the pattern of work. For me, that's the purpose of 5S, to implement the pattern of work so that it is visible, knowable, and we follow it, we flow through it. The value stream is demonstrated. It isn't just a theoretical connection, set of connections on a piece of paper or on a plan, but it is visible and and, and vital, visible to me. And I relax and I flow. And the result of that is something inside of me relaxes that thing that had been struggling day after day, week after week, year after year, 27 years from our friend Ted, relaxes and I can grow. The responsibility of management is to make sure there's a place for us humans to grow into, a vision, a shape, an architecture of improvement and of release and of contribution. Our natural condition is to want to improve whatever we're in. This is hardwired into us. It is a discussion maybe we'll have right now if we have enough time. I don't think I do. But we'll have at a later date, perhaps within this series. I'll make a note of it for next week. But there, we are hardwired for improvement. Because of this wonderful condition of our mind, the mind is a pattern-seeking mechanism. That has huge implications, so I'm going to begin that discussion right now and see how far we get. You have heard, and it is a well-established scientific fact, that the mind seeks patterns. But when you think about that, when you think about the mind-seeking patterns, you have to add to it and find them. The mind is a pattern-seeking mechanism, and the mind will consistently, and I would say obsessively, seek the pattern and will find it, even when there is none. I better make an adjustment to that. One of the... um, Phenomenons that we experience as a human being when we enter a new workplace that is not yet visual, we're new to it, and it is a non-visual workplace or a pre-visual workplace, is that we will stand there at the threshold of the healthcare facility or of the plant floor or of the agency, the office, and our mind will be scanning the perimeter Attempting to make sense out of it. This is another way, a shorthand to say pattern. That the mind is seeking the pattern. The mind is seeking an orientation. The mind is seeking to know. So that it can, number one, feel physically safe. So the body is physically safe. And number two, psychologically safe. Cognitively safe. Mentally safe. The mind does this automatically. It doesn't... um, It doesn't ever stop. It is its condition. But if you take that a little further, you realize, oh my goodness, if the mind is a pattern-seeking mechanism, what happens when it finds the pattern, when it makes sense, or when a pattern is already there establishing what the meaning is of this environment, where the pattern is in place, for example, when you have borders and addresses, Uh, elevated form of 5S or when you can see the schedule in front of you and you can see it behave in front of you and you come to an understanding of what the schedule means today, what happens is the mind registers that. I love to do this um, uh, interactively so that we're really taking big pauses and people are trying to suss it out. What happens next? What happens when the mind finds and identifies the pattern and says, okay, I've got it, I get it. Making sense out of these disparate pieces. What happens next? Well, you know what? The mind will continue its work. And what is its work? To find the pattern. But now it will seek a pattern with more ingredients in it. It will seek a higher level pattern it will continue to ask and answer the question, what does this mean? Which is a kind of shorthand for saying, finding the pattern. What is the significance of these elements sitting here in front of me with my eyes? Remember, 50% of our brain function is dedicated to finding and interpreting visual data. That's one order of magnitude above the understanding that the mind is a pattern-seeking mechanism. We just drop down into what is that seeking and, I beg your pardon, what is that finding and interpreting visual data? The mind will find, it will recognize, it will appreciate, and before it takes its next breath, it will seek the next level of pattern and find it. You know what the mind does? It makes stuff up. Another way of saying that is it invents. It invents meaning if there is none. It invents it. Much to be said about that. Let me stay focused on this particular riff. Where I want to go on it is the mind will automatically seek the next level of pattern if it can find the first level of pattern. And what do we call that? When we continually up the ante, when we look for a wider understanding and a wider understanding and a wider meaning, and we establish this, could another name for that be a penchant, a bias, a will for continuous improvement? Could we in fact say that because of the nature of our mind, that continuous improvement is hardwired within us? Could we say that? This is what I say. I say, the mind is a pattern-seeking mechanism, and that means that each of us is by birth, by biological configuration, problem solvers, improvement makers. Continuous improvement is our natural state, is our given state. We see through vision first, and then through our eyes. Our eyes collect the ingredients, but our vision gives us our answer. What does it mean? How exciting is that? Hmm? Fantastic. So this whole discussion is to get us started in examining this story that the young Ted told us about the hero within and how visuality not only reflects that journey to the hero within, but cultivates it. And that is why workplace visuality is so powerful, so very powerful in creating a a spirited and engaged, high-performing work culture. It is the natural outcome. And remember, it is premised on that I. This is not team-driven Because then you have to get agreement between different people about what they need to know and what they need to share. And inevitably what happens when you ask people before their I, their identity is clear and strong within them, you'll either create a situation where it's politics as usual with the person with the loudest voice dominating, or people will become confused. That's, if you engage teams too quickly, you you have the lowest common denominator as a team, as the team condition. That's another discussion as well. So what it is, is at the core, each of us has a deep and abiding need to achieve, to contribute, not just in our everyday lives, but also at work. As I'm saying it, it's this way. We come to work to be heroes. We want to master. We want to excel. And it is the job of management on every level to help people do just that, master their work, and excel, become heroes. In visual thinking, we deliberately look for ways to make each individual, each person, independent, singular in thought and action, and in their improvement ideas. This is not the denial of teams or their importance, but it is the foundation. (laughs) It is, in fact, do you see, the first step in creating high-performing teams, groups that share a common purpose and work conscientiously and in concert to support corporate values and grow the business. I call this approach eye-driven. It's at the very heart of what makes workplace visuality produce such powerful Bottom line outcomes and cultural outcomes, they go hand in hand. The bottom line outcomes in many ways are more dazzling. But then you turn around and you say, wait a minute, the cultural outcomes are dazzling. I have a a wonderful GM I'm working with currently, and he calls it shiny eyes. He says, that's what I live for. That's That's why I know this is working. People's eyes are shining. That's a metric for me. So at first glance, eye-driven seems counterintuitive, the opposite of a team-based work culture that so many companies seek. But in fact, eye-driven is a step in exactly that direction. It is, for me, an indispensable first step towards an aligned, unified work culture. To make a hero's contribution, we must find that margin on the inside of us to contribute on the outside of us. That margin almost always surfaces when people feel a sense of control, some degree of control over their corner of the world, their work. And so, so many of us get overwhelmed by everyday struggles when we remove those struggles. And I'm talking about missing information, missing answers, answers that are incomplete, inaccurate, too late, simply unavailable. So many questions asked and unasked unanswered, so much missing information, so much missing <laughs> information. So so when we, visuality is exactly designed to dissolve that and to allow this hero within this eye to come out. It is a prescribed outcome. It isn't by coincidence, although I have to tell you the truth. I discovered it that it was happening only because it did happen. And I thought, this is far beyond anything that I ever expected this work to produce. Look at these people. They love what they're doing. They're contributing, they're improving. They're creating this visual workplace that is also so beautiful. And I'm not just talking about operators. They're changing as individuals. What's going on? What's going on? And I realized, my goodness, we're liberating information, and and with it the human will. Ah, a revolution, <laughs> a transformation. So, this is the first in the series of that I'm calling it, the hero within, and we'll begin to play this theme through various um, scenarios and anecdotes and things that I've learned. And I hope you find this strengthening and clarifying. I hope you at least find it intriguing, interesting. It is entirely my pleasure to share these um, things that I've learned with you. I am so glad that you tuned in. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Please send your comments, your pictures, your stories to radio at visualworkplace.com. Visit us at visualworkplace.com. There's lots of articles on there, and there are these podcasts. And tune in next time. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm signing off. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.